We're going to come to a time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible, talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. If you would take your Bible, if you don't have one, there's one, a brown pew Bible, page 477, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 13, when you found that, if you would stand together with me, and we'll read this passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting at verse 13. Solomon writes this, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. Quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions. While the rich occupy the low ones, I have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed. But skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed... There is no profit for the charmer. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Ask God's blessing on this time and his working of his spirit as we come to his word now. Living God, we come now to this word which we believe is a living word and ask you to speak powerfully to each one of us by your spirit. We believe that your spirit inspired men centuries ago to write these words down and that because it's your words to us, we believe that this book can still speak to us today, that what we read and look at can change us, can challenge us, can transform us, even today, by the power of that same Spirit. And so we're asking that you would do that. Father, would you meet each one of us here today by your Spirit? You tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. Even if you couldn't care less about the sport of hockey, if you've been in Vancouver for any length of time, you have undoubtedly said or heard somebody say, 
if the Canucks could just sign blank, somebody, this guy to their teams, get him to sign a contract, we would have a legitimate chance of winning the Stanley Cup. We just get that guy. I, I, I love the Canucks. I will be a fan, always win or lose, but I think history, sports injury alone, that, that shows us that's a, that's a false belief. It feels like it's never going to happen. There isn't that one special player that's going to do it. Uh, as long as I can remember, I have been a hopeless romantic. I just have been. I don't know what came over me. So I, I've just been certain, certain in my heart and in my mind that if I could just find the mythical one, whoever that mythical one is, that my life would be complete. We would live out our days together to the blissful soundtrack of Kenny G and Phil Collins songs. I love my wife in ways I can't even explain to you. And, and my life has been blessed and bettered by being married to her in ways too numerous to mention. But there's not a married person in here that wouldn't tell you. Also, marriage is not the key to all life's problems. Marriage comes with its own special set of them. It's not the key. Or maybe you know the tale of Achilles, the hero of Greco-Roman mythology, son of the mortal king Peleus and the sea goddess Thetis. Now Achilles was this man of great strength and power, fearless warrior who apparently also looked like Brad Pitt. But although he was undefeated, a champion who was relied on heavily by the Greek armies, Achilles also had this fatal weakness. If you know the story, his mother had done everything she could to try to make Achilles immortal, like she was. So she'd done all these things, everything including burning him over a fire every night, to burn away the mortal parts of him and then dressing the wounds with ambrosia ointment. Two, more famously, she dipped him, dunked him in the river Styx, which was said to confer the immortality of the gods. Now, I know we all want the best for our kids. I feel like that steps over the line of what's appropriate. But anyway, this is what she wanted her son to be immortal. The problem was, when she dipped her son into the river, she held him tightly by the ankle, keeping the waters of that river from touching Achilles' heel, and so from that point in time, every part of him was immortal, was living forever, except his one vulnerable place, his heel. And at the end of the Trojan War, a young man named Paris, who was not a brave warrior at all, shot an arrow at random, and as the legend goes, that arrow was guided by the god Apollo himself to the one place he knew Achilles was vulnerable. Struck him in the heel, and he died on the spot. This otherwise undefeatable foe, Gone. This champion the Greeks relied on, gone. We are continuing in this series, very near the end now, through the book of Ecclesiastes, called A Chasing After the Wind. And if you've been with us for any number of weeks in this series, you'll know that Solomon, who the Bible tells us, had his own superpower, was given his own divine gift of godlike wisdom, so that he was said to be wiser than anyone that ever lived before him and anyone who would come to live after him. Solomon has he's had a great deal to say about wisdom. He's talked about it a lot. Again and again in the examination of his thesis that everything under the sun is hebel, everything is like a mist or a vapor. Solomon has still held up wisdom as being superior to all other things. 
He's told us wisdom is like an inheritance. It's like a shelter. That wisdom it preserves the life of its possessor. And as we'll see in our passage today, he says wisdom is superior to strength and to weapons of war. But above all other things, what Solomon has repeatedly told us is that wisdom, as we can know it under the sun, is superior to folly. That wisdom is always going to be superior to foolishness in our days under the sun. And yet, for all the strength and protection wisdom offers, Solomon has also been very quick and careful to point out that wisdom still has limitations. Wisdom as we can know it here in our days under the sun, it still has limitations. And ironically, what he's going to show us today, what he wants to help us see is that wisdom, although it is superior to folly, folly is also the Achilles heel of wisdom. That all the benefits of wisdom, that, are, that they are still susceptible to even the smallest momentary prick of folly's arrow. But if you think about it, it's something that's probably pretty important for us to hear because as individuals, as well as humanity in general, aren't we all seeking out that one champion, that undefeatable champion that we can rely on, that we can hold on to, that's going to bring us meaning, value, purpose in life. It's going to be that protection for us. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be that relationship, that, that, that status, that position, that certain number on your bank account statement, whatever it is, we think, if I just had that, I'd be protected. I'd be invulnerable from anything else that life would throw at me. And to help us, the help that Solomon is trying to give us here and really throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that he wants to show us that in his lifetime of investigation, what he's come to discover is that under the sun, that champion does not exist. It's not here. It does not exist. You're not going to find it. And Solomon would save us. He would save us here from taking one more step down that dead-end path, wasting one more day pursuing and trying to find protection under that champion that actually has a fatal flaw. And as it relates to trusting in something like wisdom to be that champion, that's one of the places we look that's one of the champions we try to hold up. As it relates to trusting wisdom as the champion, Solomon's going to show us two things in our passage today. He's going to show us that wisdom is superior to strength. It is. But wisdom is also susceptible to folly, both within and without. Wisdom is superior to folly, but wisdom is susceptible to folly, both from without and and from within. So, if you close your Bibles, open them again with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning of verse 13. Follow along with me as we look at the strength and the susceptibility of wisdom. So let's look, first of all, how wisdom is superior to strength. Wisdom is superior to strength. If you look back at the start of our passage there in verse 13, Solomon begins with something of a parable about wisdom that he says it's greatly impressing to him. Greatly impressed him. Look with me there at verse 14 is where it starts. He says, There was once a small city with only a few people, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city 
by his wisdom. Now, in a sense, that parable is simply repeating what we looked at last week in verse 11 of chapter 9, showing us that the battle is not always to the strong, nor does favor always come to the learned. I mean, isn't that what we see? Uh, don't we see that victory in battle doesn't go to the strong side you'd, you'd think would win? Nor does favor and honor go to this wise man who saved this city. But beyond a simple demonstration of how, once again, time and chance happen to all, I think what Solomon is highlighting here in particular is the way that wisdom is this superior thing that wins the day. Superior even to the strength and military prowess of this formidable attacking army. Given the outcome of what happens, that he sees wisdom bringing about to this unwise, unwinnable day, it's little wonder why in verse 16 Solomon would say there, wisdom is better than strength. Or verse 18, he would say, wisdom is better than the weapons of war, even if that wisdom is not given the proper credit it deserves. It's still better. It's superior to this strong military might coming against the city. Look ahead now to verse 4 in chapter 10. Here Solomon writes, If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. So here, Solomon is showing us once again, wisdom is superior to strength. Only now, instead of being superior to the strength of an attacking army, now he's showing us how wisdom is superior to the strength of an angry ruler. We want to put this in modern day terms, maybe like an angry boss that you might have. Now he seems to be assuming a wrong, mistaken response from this person in authority by telling us that our calm, wise response can lay great errors to rest. So he seems to be saying that that's how wisdom is stronger here. But you know what I think he's saying here? Just put this in a modern day context. Let's say you're in the business world. I think he's saying, what if your boss one day just lets into you and your team and it's like, what's going on with your spending? You're way over budget here. Maybe instead of just getting indignant, chucking papers across the table, quitting your job and storming out, maybe the wise way to respond in that moment is to just absorb a little bit of that anger. Absorb a little bit before then just calmly explaining how actually that extra spending was about gaining client retention that is now going to benefit our company for years to come. If you just flip out and storm out of there, you, you lose that opportunity, right? Or let's put it in like a home context. Maybe some of you here can relate to this. You come home one night, it's three hours after curfew, and your dad just blows his top just blows his top, maybe not responding with the ever unhelpful, uh, storming off into your room, slamming the door. Maybe instead, responding to that anger with something more of, a, of expressing your understanding of his anger. I understand, yeah, I'm sorry I'm so late. Asking for the opportunity to explain the reason for your lateness. Maybe that's going to be better. Also, maybe being able to explain to your dad how it actually is possible that in 2018, none of your friends had a cell phone that they could have used to call. I know, is that too much? I'm practicing for when we have teenagers. Does that that seem good? Okay. I love Derek Kidner's commentary on this passage when he writes this. What we are invited to notice here is the rather absurd human phenomena called the huff. 
If one can recognize its symptoms, one will be saved some self-inflicted damage. For while it may feel magnificent to resign your posts, ostensibly on principle, but actually in a fit of pride, it is in fact less impressive and much more immature than it feels. Earlier in the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, Solomon said it this way, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And the wisdom of just staying present, calmly responding in the face of anger, provides you with a real opportunity, both for anger to be overcome and for error to be corrected, an opportunity that the huff just sees wasted. So, Solomon has shown us how wisdom is superior to the strength of an attacking army, as well as the strength of an angry ruler or boss. If you look down at verses 10 and 11 of this same chapter, we see how wisdom is also superior to the strength of natural, everyday obstacles that we face. Look there, verse 10. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. Verse 11, if a snake bites before it is charmed, there is no profit to the charmer. Now, this is much more practical, pragmatic advice, but it doesn't make it any less true. I mean, I see this as being on the same level of like sage dad advice, the kind of like use the right tool for the job, work smarter, not harder, these kind of things. We've probably all heard our dads say things like this. It's also why it's safe to assume I think we're never going to see a competition in one of those lumberjack shows where they see who can smash through a log the fastest with a sledgehammer, or why you're never going to see an American Idol-type competition for novice snake charmers. Why? Because you might be strong enough to accomplish those things or dumb enough, but those feats, in the end, they don't accomplish anything. And even the simplest person in that audience knows there are wiser ways to carry out those tasks. In the end, I think what Solomon is getting at here with each of these examples is he's asking us, whenever we're confronted with the strength of others, to honestly ask ourselves the question, what's my goal here? What do I actually want to see as the outcome? When I'm confronted with the strength of others, what's my goal? Because he's clearly demonstrated wisdom is superior to strength. In every case, he's shown us that. But if your goal is honestly to act, speak, serve in a way that's going to be of greatest benefit to everyone, even if the credit goes to someone else, that's going to be received very differently. It's going to achieve a far greater result than if your goal is primarily just to show people how wise, principled, and strong you are. Different goals in those situations bring about very different results. Think about that poor man from the first example. His wisdom was superior to the strength of an entire army. He saved the whole city from certain destruction. Three weeks later, nobody could even remember that guy's name. In the New Testament, Matthew 6, part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he talks about giving and serving in ways that are not seen and rewarded by others, so that the one, that is God, who sees what is done in secret, can truly reward you. I think as individuals, as well as a church family, particularly as we think about ways to engage with our neighbors and see our city and world renewed, we need to ask ourselves, honestly, is it enough 
that God sees and will reward your calm response to anger, even if nobody else sees it? Is it enough to know that your quiet words of wisdom helped somebody, even if nobody knows it was you that said them? Is it enough for us as a church to serve our neighborhood and our city in wise ways that help them to flourish, even if the name of this church is never remembered, never shows up in the newspaper, knowing that God sees and he will reward? It's not an easy answer. I know my own pride very often. It needs somebody to say, good job. I saw that you did that. It's not enough. I, I know it's often not enough. And we need to ask ourselves that. Because if the goal is growing the kingdom of God, then the only recognition that matters is his. But if the goal is growing the kingdom of Dunbar Heights Baptist Church, the goal is growing our own personal kingdoms, then I think no matter how wise the action is, it still rolls over from the category of wisdom back into folly. Which is a helpful way to transition into the next thing Solomon wants to show us, which is that wisdom is susceptible to folly, both from without and from within. Wisdom is susceptible to folly from without and from within. Look at verse 17 and 18 again, and we'll read all of it this time. Solomon says, The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. One sinner destroys much good. Good. Look at the way he illustrates this in verse 1 of chapter 10. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I mean, the picture is clear enough. A perfume, an ointment maker, he's making a big batch of whatever he's making. Through the day, little tiny flies land in the mixture and die, and as a result, it makes the smell and the appearance of this perfume, this otherwise beautiful thing, now it's useless, it's wasted. It's rancid. I mean, you're not going to sell a lot of Chanel number no. 5 with dead flies floating in the bottle. The illustration is also powerful when we think about how that applies to wisdom and folly as well. Just the way that the smallest of actions, the tiniest of words in the wrong context can take the wisest, truest of actions and ruin them in a moment. I mean, just imagine something like you're on a short-term missions trip and one of your team members acts in a way that's incredibly culturally insensitive. Everybody's like, whoa, whoa. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter the work you're doing. It's, it's ruined. The whole thing is blown up because of one person's action. Or maybe you, if you're part of a company that has this great reputation, uh, well-known in the community as a support, giving to all kinds of initiatives, and then one Random sentence taken out of context from one of the executives goes viral and the whole company, their reputation is just gone. I mean, particularly, if you think about it, in our day and age of global connectedness with such an extreme level through social media, the damage from even the smallest of mistakes can be devastating. Again, Derek Kidner commenting now on this verse says, it puts into a vividly unpleasant form the principle on which the previous chapter ended. Namely, it takes far less to ruin something than to create it. 
But for me, honestly, that's one of the most terrifying things of all to think about. For think about what Solomon is saying here, is that for all wisdom's superiority over all these other things he mentioned here and elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, second half of verse 18 in, uh, in chapter 9 and second half of verse 1, both clearly say even a little bit of folly, even just one sinner among the group still has the power and ability to render it all meaningless. It's totally vulnerable. It's just, it's strong, but it's vulnerable. It's never simple. Few things in life are, but I think broadly speaking, we can break down what Solomon says here about the way wisdom under the sun is susceptible, is vulnerable to folly in two categories. I think Solomon shows us how wisdom is susceptible to folly from without, from outside, and also how wisdom is susceptible to folly from within. I think we see Solomon describing folly's influence from without, external to us, in verses 5 through 7. Look with me there. (coughs) He says, There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Now, this is interesting because if you were here last week, Solomon was talking about another evil he saw under the sun as it relates to death, talking about how this same destiny came to all. Bad, good, didn't matter. He says, this is the evil I've seen under the sun. Now here, he's talking about an evil he sees under the sun as it relates to wisdom, as fools are put in high places of leadership and influence. And the imagery of verse 7 is quite striking. Again, this I've seen... Slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. I mean, it's striking because in today's world, this would be like Queen Elizabeth walking behind the horses with a dustbin and a broom, while the MI5 Secret Service guy sits in the armored car just waving politely at people. It doesn't, it's totally topsy-turvy. Now, it would be all too easy here to pick at the low-hanging political fruit of examples we might think of with Solomon's description here of Fools in places of power and influence. I'm not going to do that. I appreciated author Philip Reichen's restraint here in his own commentary on these verses when he says, whenever we see things turned upside down, whenever a society celebrates immorality, perpetuates wrongful violence, punishes righteousness, denies the authority of God, or persecutes his people, we may be sure that folly is in control. That's how you know. Excuse me. But I think where you see this kind of external influence from folly on wisdom at a societal level today, I think we see it in all kinds of different places. One would surely be the way that we no longer look to experts. We don't look to sociologists, economists, uh, these kind of people to help us understand and interpret the issues of the day. Who do we look to? Celebrities. I want to know what Britney Spears has to say about global warming. I want to hear her views on this. That's going to help me know how I should react. And politics. We no longer, it's no longer just somebody's ability to have a stance and defend certain issues. It's how many Facebook and Instagram followers they have. That can influence the vote just on those things. (coughs) 
If we need a biblical example of this, <clears throat> if we need a biblical, uh, <clears throat> we'll get there. If we need a biblical example of external folly, undoing wisdom, we need look no further than a guy like Moses. Remember, he's leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. After 40 years of being daily worn down, beaten up by their endless, faithless bickering and folly, even Moses, a man who was said to have spoken with God face to face as a friend, even that guy, in a moment, he just had enough. Loses his temper, blows up, and in that one moment, ruins 40 years of faithfulness to God, he doesn't go into the promised land. External folly just wearing down the wisdom to the place where in a moment of frustration, it now becomes meaningless. If you look at verse 8 and 9 now, here I think Solomon describes something of folly's influence from within. Here he writes, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Now, Yes, these are all relatively everyday examples, the kind of workplace injuries that you'd, you know, Workplace BC is going to be looking at every day. But I think the point Solomon is trying to make with these everyday examples is that human error, momentary carelessness, whatever it is, when performing a task that we've done a thousand times can also be that one moment of folly, that one moment of carelessness that destroys an otherwise perfect injury-free career. How many times have we heard about a man or a woman who's just an expert in their field, who's been doing this for years, and then in that one moment decides they can just forego the safety gear? Uh, you know what, I don't, I don't need to follow best practices. I've been doing this forever. And then that's the one moment when time and chance happens to them. Career over. Biblical example of folly outweighing wisdom in the moment could be someone like Isaac's eldest son, Esau. Where we're told about how he had the place of honor and privilege in the family as the eldest son, and yet in a moment of weakness, just being hungry, sells away his entire birthright for nothing more than a bowl of stew. Internal folly can blow up and make wisdom useless as well. Here's the point I see Solomon getting at as it relates to folly's ability, whether internal or external, to ruin or outweigh wisdom superior a pursuit as it might be. The past may be an excellent indicator of a future performance, but it's not the only indicator. Your past experience may be an excellent indicator of what's going to happen tomorrow, but it's not the only indicator. What can end up happening, regardless of the environment, is people can become simultaneously overconfident and complacent when it comes to vigilance, consistency, and as a result, they can give in to folly's influence unsuspectingly, blowing up careers, lives, families in a moment. My father, he worked in corrections for 35 years. He said in all of his time working in different prisons around B.C., he said, very rarely did I meet anyone in those jails who was a truly wicked, evil person. He said, more often than not, they were filled with regular, everyday guys who made a mistake in the moment, and now we're serving time for it. But lives, careers, families, all blown up because of that one moment of folly. 
Philip Reichen states the fundamental problem well, I think, here, regardless of whether or not the influence is internal or external of folly on wisdom. He says, most Christians can distinguish good from evil. We know that some things are morally right, while others are morally wrong, so we try to do the right thing instead of the wrong things. Good. This kind of thinking is fine as far as it goes. The trouble, however, is that some of the most important choices in life are not between good and evil, but between wisdom and folly. I don't get nervous at all when a Another pastor, colleague, comes to me and asks me to pray for him, that God would protect him from besetting sins, sins that would just blow up his life and family and ministry. I get nervous around pastors who never ask me to pray for them about that. Or worse, who, who assume that because they have a past pattern of faithfulness or because they hold a position of spiritual authority, somehow that protects them from being fooled tomorrow. It doesn't. We are all vulnerable. Or when I show up at somebody's workplace, I don't get annoyed when a professional wants to instruct me about essential safety practices that they go through every time in order to carry out their profession. I get worried, frightened by the man or woman who wants to take my kid out for a ride and says, don't worry, I've been doing this for years. I don't care if <laughs> you've been doing it for years. The past is not always a sufficient predictor of what's going to happen tomorrow. And the humble, vigilant among us will recognize that and continue to press for the need for safety, protection, accountability, long after the requirement for it has passed. Why? Because wisdom is susceptible, is vulnerable to even the smallest amount of folly. shouldn't be lost on us as we close this morning that even Solomon himself, wisest man who ever lived, is still speaking from personal experience here when he warns us about the danger of permitting even the smallest concession, smallest relaxing of the steering wheel of faithfulness and accountability. Maybe you know even from his own life how his concession regarding the amount of wives and concubines he had as well as worshiping of their foreign gods undoubtedly became the flies in the ointment, the flies in the perfume of his life before God, became the Achilles heel that finally removed him from the throne and saw the entire kingdom of Israel shattered into two separate kingdoms. Now no. We can all take a breath and relax. Solomon is not calling us to a standard of perfection here, saying, you better not screw up. Don't give in to folly. Guard yourself at every moment, because if you do, ruined. Career, life, everything gone. That's, that's not what he's calling us to. It's not a standard that any of us could live up to, and Solomon himself didn't live up to that. But it is a call to pursue accountability, to pursue the help of others, help outside of ourselves, recognizing that we need to guard ourselves from this influence of folly in our lives, external and internal. We need each other. It's also a call to recognize the limitations of wisdom as we know it under the sun. It's not this great champion that we hope it would be. It's vulnerable, it's susceptible to folly. Our only hope for enjoying the superior gain of wisdom in this life. Firstly, as we saw last week, is first of all submitting our lives to the one who holds our times in his hands. Submit yourself to accountability to him. 
Many times things we look around, they do seem like they're guided by nothing more than time and chance. But God's word is clear. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Secondly, our hope is in acknowledging the susceptibility that all of us still have to folly. That no amount of past faithfulness, past success, guarantees a future imperviousness to folly's touch. It can still reach us. Don't be fooled into complacency or overconfidence. We have but one champion. One champion in whom we can boast in and rely on to secure both our present faithfulness as well as our future acceptance and welcome into God's presence one day when our lives under the sun come to an end. And it's not wisdom. It's not wisdom or anything else that we could seek out or find in this life under the sun. It's not here. It is God himself. It is God himself revealed in the person of Jesus who alone is our champion and our hope. The one whom the Apostle Paul tells us has become for us wisdom from God. It's a wisdom that's outside of this world that we live in under the sun. It's above it. And so it is free from folly's attacks. It is impervious to those attacks. That's the wisdom that we need to seek, not the wisdom as we can know it here. And it's wisdom that Paul goes on to say that becomes our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. That's why Paul exhorts us at the end. As it is written, let him who boasts, if you're looking for a champion to boast in, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 